right. So let's say a prayer. Because this was my other fault yesterday was we didn't start with a prayer. We had Mass and then we didn't have prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is just a funny story and it's like that's why I was smiling so much during Mass this morning. Is uh, So yesterday I come in and like nothing's working and all this stuff is... I spent all day Googling Microsoft wireless display adapter won't work, doesn't pair, and they give me all this advice and nothing worked. And then, uh, so this morning I got up and I was like, okay, Lord, we need to clear out some space here. And I went to confession, came in, and it worked. So I'm going to write on Microsoft's blog, if it doesn't work, go to confession. And, uh, and you might find that it works. So... Okay, so today we are, I'm really excited about participation and questions and how things are going and people seem to be really excited, Um, but we're never going to get out of original man if we don't move. So so today what I want to do is I'm going to finish up this last like theological introduction under the original man section of Theology of the Body, and then we're going to try to get all the way through the fallen um, man, like the effects of original sin. So then tomorrow we can do redemption, and then Friday kind of talk about vocations, okay? And so that way it kind of hits everybody where they are. Um, So that's the goal, is to get through all of this today. So we're going to go kind of the same time schedule. Um, So I have a question for you, which is, do we need three breaks some people say no. How many people say yes? How many people say no? Okay. So the people who say no, do you think two breaks? Okay. So we might go like a shorter break, like five minutes, that's it. I'm going to come in and be like, we're going. Because um, sometimes the material is really dense and it's, it's useful to just be able to like stand up and go, what was that? Um, and I'm sensitive to that. So, okay. So we're going to finish up this section. Um, so under the theology of original innocence. So original innocence is another term in this section of theology of the body. John Paul II uses original a lot. Like original solitude, original unity, original nakedness, original innocence, the original virginal value of the body. Like it's all about that state in which we were created before sin enters into the world. Okay, and all of this is to give us a roadmap and kind of an answer to the question of who am I supposed to be? Like, what's God's intention for my life? And that's a really important question, and it's important to go back here and reflect on it because so many people end up with the core belief, God's plan for my life is that I'm miserable. You know, God's plan for my life is that I'm not supposed to be happy. God's plan for my life is that I'm going to be surrounded by crazy people for the rest of my life. And all those things are the effect of sin, but the truth is that God's plan for your life is this. Sin enters in the world and distorts it, but the point of redemption is to 
redeem it, restore it, and actually make it better than it was in the beginning. Right? That's where our hope lies. You know, and so if you're listening to the class and you're like, I'm not like that. Well, none of us are like that. This is just the truth about who we are. You know, it's the truth about who we are. It's the truth about how God made us to be. And so when we start asking questions about why is my life distorted, we have to go and say, well, from the beginning, this is what God's plan for your life was. Centered in and messed it up, but like, there's redemption in Christ. Because when I first went through this, I didn't understand it either. And if I told you, I understand perfectly everything John Paul II wrote, I would be selling you something. Like selling you snake oil. Because it's meant to draw us in, and it's meant to challenge us, and it's meant to like provide food for our meditation. And it's meant to provide content for our prayer. And that sort of resistance that says, okay, I'm listening to this stuff and it's just totally not like my life and I'm resistant to it because I just can't believe it's true. That's the resistance that allows for growth in the spiritual life. It's the resistance that allows for growth in the spiritual life. If I stood up here and I told you God created you to be exactly like you are right now, there would be no point in taking the class. If a husband and a wife said to each other, there's nothing more I could possibly ever learn about you, which is to say, I couldn't possibly ever love you anymore, it's kind of like saying I'm bored with you. you know, and there's no room for growth. And the same thing applies to our relationship with Jesus. If we sort of say, well, I know everything that the church teaches there's no room for growth. You know, and so many of our faithful, that's their idea. I don't need to go on a retreat because I know all that because I went to Catholic schools for 12 years. I don't need to go to adult education in my parish because I know all that. I went to Catholic school for 12 years. And if we think 12 years of Catholic education taught us everything there is to know about the mystery of God, there's no room for growth and there's no love. You know, and we're about proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming love and inviting people into an, a relationship that's always going deeper. It's always going deeper. You know, nobody's ever bored in heaven because God is a mystery. And so we can never be bored in the faith. The most exciting thing in the faith is when we get new insights and we're like, wow, I never thought about that before. It's the most exciting thing in the spiritual life. And so our hope is that this class kind of starts to like, provide some fuel for the fire in your own spiritual lives, in your own reflection, and that somehow that spills over into what you teach to your students, what you pass on to your spiritual directees, what you pass on to just friends or family members that you talk to. Okay, so the theology of original innocence. Jesus urges us to consider attentively what was from the beginning. Right? It's Jesus who pointed us back to the beginning. Before and after sin, there's a different measure of spiritualization that implies another composition of inner forces in man himself, another body-soul relation. Okay, before and after sin, there's a different measure of spiritualization. There's a different kind of integration. 
right? Before original sin, there's this perfect integration of body and spirit. Right? The body reveals the person in its entirety. After original sin, we'll talk about how we sort of use our body to hide who we are. The inner proportions between sensitivity, spirituality, and affectivity, another degree of inner sensibility for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? that's what changes, is the proportions between sensitivity, spirituality, and affectivity. Right? Sensitivity is, refers to things like empathy, our ability to recognize what's going on in another person, our ability to perceive what is going on in the inner life of that person. You know, mothers are very good at being sensitive to the needs of their kids. You know, I often hear these stories of a mother who will say to her husband, you know, you really need to talk to Johnny. He's like, why? He seems fine. No, he's really upset. What? Okay, I'll go talk to him. Right? And in that way, mothers kind of teach their husbands to be fathers. John Paul II, in an essay that he wrote um, as a young philosopher, he talks about how like, men learn fatherhood from women. Like, we learn fatherhood from mothers. Affectivity refers to our own sort of emotional life. Uh, our affect, it's not a word that we use a lot, so affect means like our sensitivity to the things around us, the things that make an impression on us, our ability to receive so people who have flat affect, it usually means that they don't really respond with any kind of emotion or feeling, okay, when they have flat affect. Like when you go to somebody and you say something like, I was really hurt by whatever you said, and they just look at you like, okay. <laughs> and you feel, oh, this person doesn't understand me. Right? So our affect makes us more sensitive to the things going on around us. Although an insurmountable barrier divides us from what man was then as male and female through the gift of grace united to the mystery of creation, we're trying to understand that state of original innocence and its link with man's historical state after original sin. Okay? So we're looking back at original innocence in order to understand what exactly got distorted by sin. Original innocence says that the meaning of the body is conditioned ethically. Okay? The meaning of the body is conditioned ethically. So, everything about our body and the way that we express ourselves through our body all follows a sort of ethical ethos. The understanding of the fundamental meanings contained in the very mystery of the body, the spousal meaning of the body, is important and indispensable for knowing who man is and who he ought to be. Okay, when we understand like, what our body signifies, when we understand what we were created to be, you know, then we come to understand better who we are now and who we want to become in the future. Before being husband and wife, Adam and Eve came forth as brother and sister. He repeats that over and over again, that they both are a son and a daughter of the same father. And if man and woman cease being a reciprocal gift, they recognize that they are naked. One flesh union opens the creative perspective of human existence, 
which allows, which always renews itself through procreation. Okay, when they come together as one flesh, it opens that creative perspective of our existence. Right? We become co-creators with God. Original innocence manifests and at the same time determines the perfect ethos of the gift. Okay, the ethos of the gift refers to sort of the rules that govern the way that we form relationships. Okay, that's what this word ethos means. It's the rules that govern the way we form relationships, the way we interact with one another. So the ethos of the gift means that we form relationships according to this rule of the gift, that I've received everything from God, and then I turn and I give of myself to another. When somebody gives of themselves to me, I receive that gift. And that mutual giving and receiving form a relationship between two people. Original nakedness reveals the person, only the nakedness that turns to the other, the other into an object is the source of shame. And reciprocal love excludes turning the other into an object. After sin, the spousal meaning of the body remains as a task given to man by the ethos of the gift. Okay, so for John Paul II, the rules that govern relationships really can be reduced to, and are often reduced to, that a person is to be loved, not used, and we always see them as a subject, not an object. Okay, they're not somebody that's here for my personal use. Right? They're a subject. They're a creation of God. They're in the image of God. God reveals himself through them. They're not just sort of somebody that comes into my life for a useful purpose and then I use them and discard them. Right? Pope Francis is always talking about the throwaway culture and when he talks about the throwaway culture he's not just talking about garbage. He's talking about throwing away people. And you know, so often we lose sight of that because we become very functional in the way that we form relationships. You know, like, what do you have to tell me? Okay, it's only about business. Okay, we're good. All right, this is another place where many secretaries have helped me throughout my priesthood. Because <laughs> you know, one time I went into Pius, and Jolene Ritzman was talking about some priest that she didn't like very much. And I was like, oh, he's a good guy, though. What's the matter? Every time he calls Father, he just says, let me talk to so-and-so. He never asks, how are you? How's your day going? He never asks me any of those questions. And I was like, okay, mental note. Every time I call Jolene, I ask her how her day is. But it's true, because sometimes we become overwhelmed with tasks, and we start treating people very functionally. And in that sense, we're using them. And we're not seeing them for who they are. Man appears in the world as the highest expression of the divine gift, because he bears within himself the inner dimension of the gift. He is the highest expression of the divine gift. The divine gift is sort of everything that God creates is a gift. And man is the highest expression of that because within himself he has the capacity of giving as God has given. He bears his likeness to God with which he transcends and also rules his visibility in the world. His bodiliness, his masculinity or femininity, his nakedness. 
Okay, we are like God because we can transcend ourselves. We can reflect on ourselves. We can ask the question, why am I here? We can ask the question, why did God make me? What's the significance of my life? We can dream and realize our dreams. So marriage is a primordial sacrament. Okay? And when we talk about primordial sacrament, we have to remember the history of sacramental theology. And so the seven sacraments is named by the church, which are an efficacious sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Right? There are seven. And those seven sacraments actually were developed over a long period of time that we sort of narrowed it down to these are the seven sacraments that are efficacious signs instituted by Christ to give grace. And then we started to make a distinction between a sacrament and a sacramental. Right? A sacramental can be anything that sort of reminds us of God or points back to God. But for St. Augustine, his definition of sacrament was really just a visible sign of an invisible reality. A visible sign of an invisible reality. So when we say that marriage is the primordial sacrament, it was a sacrament before Christ instituted the sacraments. Because marriage has always been a visible sign of an invisible reality or a visible sign of God's communal love in the world. And it's always been the way that God reveals his relationship to man in sacred scripture. For that reason, we're concerned about all marriage and the meaning of all marriage. A sign that efficaciously transmits in the visible world the invisible mystery hidden in God from eternity. That's more of Augustine's definition. In the Second Vatican Council, it says that like, Christ is the sacrament of the Father. Right? The church is a sacrament of Christ. You know, some people want to say everything is a sacrament of God because everything was created by God, but then sacrament loses its meaning, and there's this whole theological debate between Karl Rahner and Columbo, I think is the name. This sacrament is constituted in man inasmuch as he is a body through his visible masculinity and femininity. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. So the body is the sacrament of the person. The body is the sacrament of the person. And we do live in a world where people think there's no significance to their bodies. That's why people can fall into this bad sort of Manichaean mindset that says, I'm only sinning with my body, I'm really a good person. Like, I'm a good person, it doesn't matter what I do. All of that represents the splitting between the way we understand ourselves as a person and our body. But from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning the body makes visible what is invisible. Consciousness of the gift conditions, in this case, the sacrament of the body. In his body, as man or woman, man senses himself as a subject of holiness. Consciousness of the gift. We're conscious of the fact that we've received everything from God. And so consciousness of the gift here means consciousness of 
the relation between us and God. Right? Yesterday we said the gift refers to the gift given, the gift received, and the relationship that forms between these two people. So when we're conscious of the fact that we've received everything from God, when we're conscious of the relationship between us and God, in that sense, then we more fully reveal God through our bodies. And we sense ourselves as a subject of holiness. We realize that there's something holy about being a human person. So in this last section, he goes into talking about procreation. So we've talked about being a child, being a son or daughter, being a spouse, and this relationship between men and women, and now he'll talk about becoming mothers and fathers. And so he looks into Genesis 4. Right? After the fall, sin and death have entered into man's history in some way through the very heart of that unity that had from the beginning been formed by man and woman. Created to be one flesh. Adam united himself with Eve, his wife, who conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so there's two kind of phrases here. There's united himself to his wife and it's also translated as knew his wife. So one flesh union is defined as knowledge. There's a relation between knowledge and one flesh union. And this word new, knowledge, indicates intentionally, intentionality. It indicates the deepest essence of the reality of shared married life. The deepest essence of the reality of shared married life is knowledge. Intimacy on all levels. This always makes me laugh because in the 80s, somebody came up with this acronym SPICE and they're like, your relationship needs spice. And it always makes me feel kind of like weird. So, <laughs> so SPICE is an acronym they use at Engaged Encounter, Marriage Encounter, um, some other programs. Right? It means spiritual, uh, physical, intellectual, communicative and emotional, right? These five levels of intimacy, right? But intimacy in more broad sense is achieved when somebody really knows me, right? It's achieved, it's achieved when somebody really knows me. Intimacy in a relationship means somebody knows me, I know that they know me, and I feel safe in this relationship. And so knowledge means this person really knows me and I feel safe in this relationship, And so that kind of intimacy culminates in the conjugal love between a man and a woman. In Genesis 4.1, the couple experiences the meaning of their bodies in a particular way. They become one single subject of the act while remaining two really distinct subjects in this unity. So the conjugal act or conjugal intimacy Right? He says they become one single subject. It's something that they enter into together. And yet, in their togetherness, they remain two distinct subjects. Right? They're both submitting their wills to one another. And so, individually, they submit to each other 
entrust themselves to each other. And because they share that intention, they become one single subject of the act. And again, like these are things we have to wrap our heads around because when we, initial, when we initially hear them, we're like, how can they be a unity and distinct at the same time? But if they don't remain distinct at the same time, that's when the conjugal act often becomes distorted. When somebody says, I guess so, or when somebody's not really a willing participant, and that happens. Okay, it happens outside of marriage often, but it also happens inside of marriage. They reveal themselves to one another with that specific depth of their own human eye, which precisely reveals itself also through their sex, their masculinity and femininity. In a singular way, the woman is given in the mode of knowledge to the man and he to her. Okay, so when he talks about them giving themselves to each other, okay, they reveal themselves to each other completely, and they're given in the mode of knowledge. Okay, they're given in the mode of knowledge. So the fact that the biblical term for the conjugal act is often knowledge provides also a roadmap for our own chastity education. Because like we reveal ourselves through our bodies according to the amount of knowledge somebody else has of us in our entirety. And that amount of knowledge somebody has of us in our entirety is something that must be discerned through the dating process. And the dating process is about, like, do I know that this person loves me? What good does this person want from me? Can I trust this person? And if I'm not willing to trust them with the intimate details of my heart, then why would I trust them with the intimate details of my body? So when we talk about modesty, you know, and which involves the revealing of one's body to the world, like that should be proportionate to the knowledge we want them to have of us in our interior in our interior life. Which takes place in marriage, right? Because when do you know you can give yourself to the other, trust the other person completely? After they promise, I will be here for you forever. It's only after they promise, I will take care of you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health till death do us part, that you know that you can give yourself entirely to another person. And the promise has value. This gift of self in a concrete way points to the uniqueness and unrepeatability of the person. Because it is a question of knowledge, it cannot be a passive acceptance of one's own determination of the part of the body and of its sex. Okay, because it's a question of knowledge, it can't just be a sort of passive giving in to my drives. If it's about knowledge, it can't be about compulsion. The mystery of femininity manifests and reveals itself in its full depth through motherhood. As the text says, who conceived and gave birth. The woman stands before the man as mother, subject of new human life that is conceived and develops in her 
and is born from her into the world. Right? So he says that the mystery of femininity manifests and reveals itself in its full depth through motherhood. You know, so this came up over the last couple of days that when we talk about attributes of masculinity and femininity, they manifest themselves in their fullness in motherhood and fatherhood. So all of those masculine feminine traits that we want to list off and kind of go on the board and say, this is what it means to be a man, this is what it means to be a woman, they're all ordered towards motherhood and fatherhood. So masculinity is also revealed in its full depth in fatherhood because that's what it's ordered towards. When we talk about forming people for vocations, we don't really form people for marriage. We form them for motherhood and fatherhood because you become married to become a mother and a father. It's implied and actually, like when people look at it as like, three distinct stages that have some length to them, like there's, I, we have to be married for a long time before we decide we're going to be a mother and a father. That actually can like slow down the development and growth of the marriage. Like people just get bored with each other because you come to discover yourself in a new way when you become a parent. You know, in my priesthood. I come to discover myself in a new way through spiritual fatherhood. And my own identity becomes stronger as I witness how our Lord uses me as a spiritual father in other people's lives. If that never happened, I'd probably be depressed. The woman's constitution differs from that of the man bodily. Through motherhood, motherhood shows this constitution from within as a particular power of the feminine organism, which serves with created specificity, with creative specificity for the conception and generation of human beings with the concurrence of the man. Right? Knowledge conditions begetting. Through the human body, the human person is husband and wife at the same time in this particular act of knowledge, mediated by the personal masculinity and femininity, one seems to reach also the discovery of the pure subjectivity of the gift, that is, mutual self-realization in the gift. Okay, it's through the body, the human person as husband and wife, enter into this particular act of knowledge, mediated by their masculinity and femininity, because their bodies together in such a way right, that they realize who they are in a deeper way. All right, so when he says motherhood shows its constitution from within as a particular power of the feminine organism and talks about the specific aspect of the woman being able to conceive, generate, and bear children into the world This is really an important aspect of motherhood and fatherhood to make known to people. I'm dumbfounded because, like, I think it's so important. Um, In there's certain philosophers who talk about motherhood and fatherhood, and um, there's a book called Homo Viator, which I highly recommend. 
you can find it. It's probably like a used bookstore. Homo Viator by Gabriel Marcel. So Gabriel Marcel is a philosopher uh, in the French personalist era, so he's writing between World War I and World War II. And in this book, Homo Viator, he talks about the essence, the creative vow as the essence of fatherhood. And in that essay, he talks about how basically all of Europe has PTSD after World War I. And so people are just kind of walking around in a fog. And he talks about the distraction that people are running after all the time. And he, he actually talks about in there how a lot of men see becoming a father as the death of themselves in a negative sense. Like, I don't have a life anymore because I have a child. He talks about the challenges for parents of bringing people into that world where either when they have a child, then they look at the child and say, you owe everything to me because I brought you into the world. And so they treat the child as an object that's there for their own self-fulfillment. This is like the, the dad who didn't win the high school championship and then he started having babies and so he couldn't play sports and now he's gonna like make his kid practice 18 hours a day so that he wins the high school championship in order to fulfill his unfulfilled dreams and desires, so the child becomes an extension of himself. So that's one distortion in parenthood. And the other one he talks about is the guilt that parents carry around in themselves for actually having a child right now in the state of the world. So, like, I brought a child into this world. This world's a horrible place, so I owe everything to my child now. And they kind of lose their position as a father because now they're going to placate and just give everything to this child because they feel guilty about bringing the child into the world. You know, and that, I think, is a legitimate fear that many people, many faithful Catholics have today is, like, I'm going to have a baby in this world. I'm not having a kid in this world. You know, so many high school and college students, they're like, I'm never giving my kids technology. <laughs> so they know. Um, so he talks about the creative vow and the creative vow is it has to do with making a promise and being faithful to the promise and the creative vow guarantees the future right? it becomes creative in so far as I say I promise, I make a vow that I'm going to get up at 520 every day and make a holy hour and then when I'm faithful to that vow it makes me a new person. Right? Like every wedding vow is a creative vow. It makes you a new person. As you're faithful to that vow, you become a new person. It brings about transformation. You know, and the importance of making that creative vow. And it's really about making a complete, like an act of the will or a promise that I'm going to move forward because everybody felt stuck. And we live in a world today where a lot of people feel stuck. I talk to young people about goals. What are your goals for the year? Oh, what's a goal? What are you talking about? And I'm talking about young people in the workforce. They just don't understand, like, what's the point of making a promise that guarantees a future? And so anyways, this is a really...
good deal. And that's where Marcel makes that distinction between mothers and fathers. And he talks about motherhood that starts at conception and fatherhood that starts later. Like the child forms a bond with the mother and then the father's job is to break into that bond and introduce the child to the world. So there's a distinction in the way that mothers love and fathers love. And that distinction is important. There's a study that I read and I did a paper on it. It's called Parental Figures and the Representation of God by Antoine Vergot. And so Vergot does this study of motherhood and fatherhood across cultures, across religions, across different dynamics, different engagement of the faith. And, and when he looks at this, he wants to say motherhood is always affirmation and presence. Fatherhood is always authority and law. That's what he wants to say. What he has to say after the study is motherhood is primarily affirmation and presence, but secondarily authority and law. Fatherhood is primarily authority and law, secondarily affirmation and presence. And so you have affirmation and presence, and then you have authority law. So when we look at these two categories, this being maternal, this being paternal, and we think about God, God is both affirmation and presence and authority and law. Jesus says, as a mother hen, I wish to gather you under my wing. In the Psalms, we constantly hear things like, the Lord is my refuge. And so, affirmation and presence means, like, I always love you right now. I always love you right now. There's unconditional love right now. And we see that in mothers. Mother of a death row prisoner, she loves her son right now. So, I always love you right now. Fatherhood is kind of like, Bergot says, the father, if this is the child, he sort of reserves his love for the completion of the child's life. It's kind of leading the child into the future. In the midst of leading the child into the future in a healthy relationship, the child never feels like his father doesn't love him, but his father's always sort of challenging him and calling him to be better. Okay, calling him to be better. So, the mother, which is the child, is sort of like, right now, the father's kind of like calling him into the future. And in God, we have the same thing. Right? Because we can say, our Lord loves you now. That is the message of mercy. It's the message of divine mercy. While you're a sinner, Jesus loves you. Okay? But we also have this call to conversion. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we need to have both of those things in our God image. Some people's God image is only maternal. I was talking to some... I don't know if I want to tell you all my dirty laundry. So I was in a position to talk to some priests who were in alcohol treatment. And as I was talking to them, what was very interesting was... Like, these are people who, like, drunk at mass, drunk at youth group meetings, writing drunk messages to their bishops, things like that. 
And I would say, like, so did you go to confession every time that you were drunk at Mass? And they would say, no, because I know God loves me. Right? So they had this extremely maternal God image. I know God loves me. I don't need to, like, go to confession. And so there's something lacking about that call to conversion. And a lot of people in the church have that. I mean, we, in the Diocese of Lincoln, we always have confessions. People go to confession regularly. Like, we don't suffer so much from this culturally as in other places where I've been, where in order to go to confession, you've got to make an appointment with the priest, and you've got to, like, figure it out and show up at the right time. And if you're five minutes late, he goes to lunch. Um, that happened to me when I was seminarian a couple times. So we don't fall into that so much. But there can also be places in the church where we're only over here. And we might say things like, well, you made your bed, you got to lie in it. Uh, go, well, I mean, with divorced and remarried people, like, that's kind of, that's the debate going on in the Senate right now, right? Like, let's let them all come to communion. They're completely out of the church until they get their lives straightened out and get an annulment. And we need both those things. I gave a homily called, it was basically... The Synod on the Family reveals the fact that we need a Synod on the Family. (laughs) Because it reveals the fact that we don't understand maternity and paternity and how they work together. You know, how they work together, it's in Familiar's Consortia already. John Paul II says, like, people who are divorced and remarried, or they're abandoned through no fault of their own, and they had to get married to take care of their kids, they need the maternal love of the church. That's what he says. He also says, because they live in a state of contradiction, they cannot receive communion. Because the very state of life is in contradiction to the love of Christ for his church, which is an indissoluble bond between Christ and his church. Because they're in contradiction to what the Eucharist signifies, they can't receive the Eucharist. Because their objective state of life is a state of contradiction leaving room for the fact that maybe they were free to marry, but they just can't prove it, and our Lord's grace like enters in there, and our, our Lord sorts that out. But they need the maternal love of the church, which means we really should have Bible studies, lay movements, holy hours, for people who are in an irregular marriage that can't go to communion. And they should be encouraged to make a spiritual communion Go to Eucharistic adoration. Stay close to our Lord. But they need a community of care around them. Because most of the divorced people I know, they feel like they got this big D on their forehead every time they walk into Mass. And everybody's staring at them. Now everybody's not staring at them, but they feel like everybody's staring at them. So I tell the people in my group, I'm like, just get together, go to Mass, and just say, quit staring at us. Because you deserve to be there. Our Lord wants you to be there. And and so my hope for the Synod is actually that we figure this out. And I think what Pope Francis is doing, and I hope and pray this is what he's doing, is he's trying to set up this confrontation so that out of that confrontation there can be clarity. And he's just letting the confrontation go. 
Right? That's kind of what he did. He let the confrontation go at the end of it. What did he say? He said, we can fall into the temptation to turn stones into bread. And we can also fall into the temptation to just pick up stones and start throwing them at people. And there's some center or some middle ground there. Okay, so using, I'm, I'm using all of that as an illustration to say that using motherhood and fatherhood as these points of reference rather than trying to think up stereotypical characteristics of masculinity and femininity can be a better path when we're talking to young people today. Especially about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? It's about becoming a mother. It's about becoming a father. Man and wife knew each other reciprocally in the third originated by both. So a husband comes to know his wife or Adam comes to know Eve in the third person that comes forth from them. She comes to know herself as a mother in the third person that comes forth from them. There are many places in Scripture that praise motherhood. The woman has full awareness of the mystery of creation, which renews itself in human generation. Having a child is an opportunity to step back and reflect on the mystery of creation. Because God entered into this person's body in order to create a new person. This participation of God in human generation, his work and that of her husband, she's aware of all of that when she says, I acquired a man from the Lord. She doesn't say, I acquired a child from Adam, but I acquired a child from the Lord. The birth of a new man reveals the fundamental truth about the birth of man in the image of God according to the laws of nature. Biblical knowledge on the threshold of man's history. On this threshold, man stands as male and female with the consciousness of the generative meaning of his own body. Masculinity contains in a hidden way the meaning of fatherhood and femininity that of motherhood. So again, pointing to motherhood and fatherhood. The same is true about our contemporaries who, in their questions, do not, however, appeal to the law of Moses. Okay, so in this last like slide, and then we'll break... Um, John Paul II is sort of just summarizing. Okay? It's the end of the first section of audiences. And he talks about our contemporaries who today, okay, the same is true about our contemporaries, who in their questions do not, however, appeal to the law of Moses that allowed the certificate of divorce, but to other circumstances and other laws, like the civil law, or the laws laid down by psychologists. Their questions are charged with problems unknown to the interlocutors at the time of Christ. So the questions today of, why can't two people of the same sex get married? Why isn't love love? What if I feel like a woman? Why can't I be divorced and remarried again? Why do I even have to get married in the first place? Do you have to be married to have children? Is it really important to have a mother and a father? Is it important to know your mother and a father? Why can't two people who want to have a baby just use in vitro fertilization? Because they want to have a baby. A baby's good. All of those questions are unknown to the people questioning at the time of Christ, but the answer remains the same. 
he says, I think that among the answers that Christ would give to the people of our times and to their questions, often so impatient, fundamental would still be the one he gave to the Pharisees. In answering these questions, Christ would appeal first of all to the beginning. Okay, in answer to all of those questions, he would appeal, appeal first of all to the beginning. Which means going all the way back and talking about what it means to be created in the image of God. It means going all the way back to say, like, your identity is found in God. His intention is for you to find your identity in God. And it becomes much more interesting to have that conversation. There's somebody that I meet with who experiences same-sex attraction, and, you know, rather than talking about same-sex attraction... I just started talking to him a lot about his childhood, like how he came to know his identity, like how he sees himself in relationship with God, and then all this stuff comes out. You know, and in asking him a few simple questions, like all those distortions started to come out. And I was like, do you talk to your therapist about that? No. Go talk to your therapist about that. Just talk to your therapist about this. No. Go talk to your therapist about that. And, and this person in particular, there's been a lot of growth in him over the last few months. And recently I asked him, you know, how do you feel about the Supreme Court law anyways? And he said, Father, I don't really get into all of that anymore. Like, I don't really want to think about, like, what, am I gay? Am I not gay? Am I just aroused? I just want to, like, know who I am in Christ. You know, and that's what all of us are called to. You know, all of us should just want to know who we are in Christ first. If we figure that out, then everything else flows from that. But that means going back to the beginning, we reflect on like original solitude that leads into original unity. If we start the dialogue with marriage, relationships, things like that, it always, it always gets confused. There's a reason John Paul II went back to talk about original solitude. There's a reason that I've spent like two days and the first hour today on original solitude because it's not covered in most of the literature. You know, yesterday somebody said, I don't I don't really understand original solitude. I know, it's okay, don't worry about it, none of us do. Like we're trying to. Like we're trying to. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of thinking. We don't think about spiritual childhood. Very often. I mean, if you have a devotion to St. Therese, maybe you think about it. But most of us don't think about it, or we don't have a category for it. I never had a category for it, and I hated it. And now, it's all I think about. (laughs) Because when we look through that perspective and that lens, and this would be like something to write down for your own spiritual reflection, to pay attention to, going forward over the next couple of days is how many times in the liturgy do you hear the word son, daughter, child of God? How many times in the liturgy do you hear that? Pay attention to when you hear that. How many times in the liturgy do you hear the Lord referred to as a refuge? Or do you read the word Trust. If you pray the liturgy of the hours, you say the word refuge like at least five times a day and some days more than others. 
But when I would read it in the past, I would just, it wouldn't connect with me that that means when I am feeling alone, abandoned, unloved, unlovable, disappointed, misunderstood, I can go to the Lord as my refuge. That's a safe place. It's a place where I'm always loved. It's a place where I'm always accepted. It's a place where I'm always understood. It's a place where I entrust myself. So many of us don't, we don't recognize that that's what it says. Earlier in the year, I was just praying the, the penitential rite at Mass, and I said, you are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. And I just got this image of Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, being very concerned about what I was doing right now. I had never thought about that before. It's just something we say. Oh, we've got to say something before the Lord have mercy. We'll just throw this in. <laughs> but there's a reason it's there. There's a reason it's there. The opening prayer this week, like, Father, who through the abasement of your Son raised the fallen world. You know, it tells the whole history of salvation just in that prayer because Christ, like, emptied himself and took the form of a slave to be one with us in our sinfulness. Now we can have eternal gladness and joy. That's where we're supposed to be going. But sometimes we just don't clue into it. We don't pay attention to it. When we look at the liturgy, like paying attention to the relationship between Jesus and the Father is fascinating but we don't always pay attention to it. Because when I ask you, who is Jesus? Most people don't say Son of God. They say He's my Savior. He died on the cross for me, etc., etc., etc. But they don't think about He's the Son of God. That means He entrusted His life to the Father. That means His whole life is about His relationship with the Father. And so when we look at it, and we start to hear the readings at Mass... And Jesus is saying things like, Father, let these people here share in the glory that I had with you from the beginning. He's saying, he's inviting us into the relationship he has with the Father. And so if we want to know what that's like, we have to look at his relationship with the Father. Which means we have to recognize he's the son of the Father And He reveals to us who we are. He shows us what it means to be children of God. An imitation of Christ has to take place at the level of imitating Him as the Son of God, not simply imitating Him as giving up our life for other people. Because He only can give up His life for other people because He's the Son of God. And it's not always where we focus ourselves in our prayer. It's not always where we focus our kids in our prayer. You know, the stage of evangelization that we always skip, it's simply a stage of reflecting on what Jesus has done for you. Then we can go out, right? The gospel reading today. He gathered his 12 disciples. He sent out his apostles. So while they're disciples, that means all they did was receive from our Lord. And that was a couple of years where all they did was receive from our Lord, then they were ready to go out. And sometimes we just need a year of receiving from our Lord. 
I think if we just like stop actioned in the church and we said, this is going to be the year of receiving from our Lord. It's going to be the year of sonship and daughterhood. And we're going to figure that out for a year. We're going to take a year. At the end of that year, you'd have all kinds of people like doing stuff, doing Bible studies, doing all kinds of things. But sometimes we don't pause to go through that first step. You know, in the RCIA, how long is the pre-catechumenate supposed to be? Like a year. It's supposed to be a year of just pre-evangelization before you even start studying doctrine. That's what the church calls for. A year. And what do we do? Uh, you've been married to a Catholic for like 10 years. You kind of already know the faith. Just come to a few classes and we'll make you a Catholic. We do that. And people don't quite get have a conversion. And it's okay. we should all be able to spend a year doing that. And if we spent the year doing that, then everything makes more sense. And then we want to move and go. So, okay, that's my RCI tangent. Um, all right, so we're going to start Original Sin after the break. Thanks.